Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy City Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy, offering simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Check out their mobile app and interviews of Miles and Brian in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Windy City Historians podcast, episode 27, The Great Migration. Patrick. Chris, yes. You're a student of history and geography. I mean, I try to keep abreast of things. <laughs> well, I have a list here of famous Chicagoans from the 19th and 20th century, African-Americans who have contributed greatly to not just the city, but the nation, really. Okay. And I thought it'd be interesting to just read their names and we could talk about them and more importantly, where they were born. So I'll start out with Mahalia Jackson, the great gospel singer. She sang gospel for Dr. King at the March on Washington on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Yes, of course, I've heard of her. Where was she from, Chris? Well, she was from New Orleans. Thomas A. Dorsey, the father of gospel music, he was from Georgia. So I'm seeing a trend here of southern states that most of these folks are from. Right. And Congressman Oscar DePriest, Alabama, A. Philip Randolph, Florida, Ida B. Wells, Mississippi, John Stroger, Helena, Arkansas, Jesse Jackson Jr., South Carolina. Nat King Cole, who went to DeSable High School, Patrick, he was from Alabama. And of course, Muddy Waters from Mississippi. Ah, one of my favorites. I've always enjoyed the Chicago blues. And also others like Frazier Robinson, the grandfather of Michelle Obama. He was from South Carolina. It's got to be part of this theme that we're getting after, that they've all moved from the South up to the North. And again, Chicago in that time was sort of like California is, nobody is from California. Everyone's from somewhere else. Right. And Chicago was very much like that for the early settlers from the East Coast. The white settlers were from mainly from New England and upstate New York. And as we're seeing, the African-American movers and shakers were from the South. And they all came to Chicago at various times in what we call the Great Migration, where thousands of African-Americans from the rural South moved north looking for jobs and a better life. And there was quite a few jobs here, right? I mean, there was the steel mills and there was the stockyards and a lot of industry and manufacturing in addition to the railroads and transportation industries that were growing at a rapid rate here in the third industrial revolution. That's true. And you don't really have to look too far to see examples of the Great Migration everywhere if you're looking for it. For example, I have here a Sun-Times article, an obituary about Mr. Izell Cooper, who owned Coop's Records Store and was a jazzologist. And it was fascinating to learn that Mr. Cooper was born in Memphis, Tennessee. After heading north in the Great Migration, he worked at Hillman's Grocery Store at State Street and Washington Street. So Mr. Cooper, again, like those we listed before, came up to Chicago in the Great Migration. It's also a coincidence because Mr. Cooper went to Benassis High School in Memphis, Tennessee. And that's where our guest went to high school, Charles Branham. 
Oh, always seeing these connections, Chris. I'm always impressed. <laughs> this is the advantage of you being a, a local Chicagoan. Dr. Branham has a very distinguished resume. He taught at many great colleges, including Chicago State University, Roosevelt University. He taught at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and he's won various awards. He's taught at Northwestern. He's taught at IU Northwest. And in 1984, he began working as an historian at the DeSable Museum, where he served as director of education and now is senior historian. What I found interesting about the talk with him, Chris, was that his background in teaching, and you could just tell he's such a great educator. He's very passionate about disseminating information to students. Absolutely. But you know, Patrick, what's really impressive to me is Dr. Branham had a series on public television called The Black Experience that ran a few years ago. And he won an Emmy Award, and he was doing this way before Henry Louis Gates was doing his programs, which are fantastic. But Charles Branham was there first, so. An Emmy, that's so impressive. We were delighted to talk with Dr. Branham about the Great Migration, and we began our discussion with what was in the news at the time of the interview this summer, which of course was the renaming of Lakeshore Drive to Jean-Baptiste Pointe de Sable Lakeshore Drive. Also, we talked about Ida B. Wells. It was July 25th, 2018, that the city council renamed the street, which had been called Congress Parkway, Ida B. Wells Drive, in honor of the civil rights activists. It's also the first downtown street in Chicago named for a woman of color. So I think that would be a good place to start the interview. You know, what's interesting is there's been a lot of battles in Chicago for African-American history to be recognized and not always an easy thing. But I think we should acknowledge that there was tremendous victories this year with Jean-Baptiste Pointe de Sable Lakeshore Drive and Ida B. Wells statue in the park. Right. And I was visiting some friends in Barrington last night and passed by the Ida B. Wells sign as you head into the Eisenhower. I just thought about it for a second. When I was there with my friends, they asked me about Ida B. Wells, and I told them the Steve Green story. And I think it's one of the perfect examples of the impact of the growth of the African-American community during the Great Migration, although she herself had arrived before the Great Migration. Steve Green was a sharecropper in Arkansas, and he wanted to leave the assignment and hire on with somebody else. And the owner of the land said, no, you're not going anywhere. So the owner of the land comes to his cabin with a shotgun, shoots at Steve Green. Steve Green shoots back and kills him. Well, you just don't do that in Arkansas. Right. Or pretty much anywhere in the United States. So Green hightails out of uh, Arkansas and ends up in Georgia and somehow mysteriously finds his way to southern Illinois. He's captured. And they're going to turn him over to the Arkansas police who will take him back home, which meant either certain execution or lynching. And Ida B. Wells got hold of the information because she had a literary group among her many, many dozens of other creations. And somebody in the group told her about Steve Green. And so the first thing she does is contact a lawyer, Ed Wright who ultimately becomes the first African-American ward committeeman in Chicago and and the power broker in the black community through the early 1920s. 
helps her get in contact with the governor of Illinois. I think it's Lynn Small at the time. I'm not sure. And they persuade him to prevent Greens being extradited back to Arkansas. I think Small can do it because he has a close relationship with the sheriff in, I think, Springfield. And he owes him some favors. And so Small is able to stop him being extradited. And then Ida B. Wells is somehow able to get him from Southern Illinois to Chicago, where he stays for a short period of time and then disappears. The rumor was, and I don't think this ever was confirmed, that they somehow he made it to Canada. Hmm. In any event, it was a perfect illustration of Ida B. Wells. First, she's an institution builder. She you know, the Ida B. Wells Homes, the Ida B. Wells uh, Organization for Young Women, literary clubs, other kinds of activities. Secondly, African-Americans are becoming more important in politics. So people who are interested, active in the Republican Party, as was her husband, Ferdinand Barnett, and she, and Ed Wright, were able to get the ear of the governor of Illinois to prevent his extradition. Thirdly, she was always working with small groups throughout the African-American community across class lines, which was very important because I don't think that the elite of the old settlers would have been either that interested in Steve Green, nor would they have had the resources to get him from Southern Illinois to Chicago and then to have him help him disappear and then get the scan the story of his disappearance virtually disappears from a newspaper, uh, including the Chicago Defender. Nobody talks about Steve Green anymore. And so what I said was, this is a perfect example of Ida B. Wells as an, the intersectional leader. I mean, she has relationships with institutions. She has relationships with women's organizations because she's a strong advocate for women's suffrage. She has relationships around the country. She certainly has relationships in the African-American community, including being a founding member of the NAACP, so that race, class, gender, and geography collapse in her illustrious career. She crossed barriers in all of those categories. And she wasn't afraid to speak truth to power either. I mean, remember when she met with Frederick Douglass at the Columbian Exposition, she was up in his face about, what? Are, why are you here? That's a wonderful point because everybody admired Frederick Douglass. I mean, she was not afraid to criticize him. And ultimately, from my reading, she came to believe that he was probably correct. But this was her introduction. I mean, this is a woman who literally was on the run because they had threatened to lynch her if she came back to Memphis. So instead of keeping a low profile or instead of just simply criticizing and attacking the inhumanity of lynching, she did two other important things. One is she was a researcher. She was a scholar. She wanted to have facts and statistics and narratives that would make her case more persuasive. And in order to do that, she had to travel widely. Right. And secondly, they came with great sacrifice. I mean, she was gone a lot of the time. Her children suffered. And thankfully, she had a husband, Ferdinand Barnett, who was not only active in the Republican Party, the first African-American graduate of Northwestern Law School, uh, where Harold Washington graduated. But he gave her support so that she was able to do these things. Some other people might have had to sacrifice their activism to raise four children, but she didn't. And again, this is a wonderful example of the degree to which she was both courageous, but also willing to do the hard work, not just simply talk about lynching, but also research it. That was what made her pamphlet so persuasive in the Chicago World's Fair, 
the fact that she knew exactly what she was talking about. She could provide dates and instances and narratives that went beyond simply some kind of long form attack on lynching. I must confess, she is my favorite Chicagoan, even more than Harold. Ida B. Wells is the person that I admire the most. I just read an essay by her great-granddaughter, Kristen Duster. Very interesting, the fact that the family, her descendants are still in the city. Yes, and my family was close. My father's family was close to the Dusters. My grandfather, whom I never knew because he passed before I was born, was vice president of the Ida B. Wells Homes and the assistant pastor of Olivet Baptist Church, which was during the Great Migration, the largest African-American church in Chicago. It claimed to be the largest African-American congregation in the country, but I, I, I don't put necessarily much stock in that. In any event, I knew Alfreda Duster. I did not know her daughter that well, but I knew Alfreda Duster, who carried the torch edited her mother's papers. And that was my introduction to Ida B. Walsh, quite frankly, because even though I grew up in Memphis, I didn't know anything about her until I came to the University of Chicago. And I believe it was John Hope Franklin who introduced me, but I would socialize with her on occasion because members of my family knew the Dusters. That's like royalty right there. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that as far as having the street cred of the black community on the South side of Chicago. Interestingly enough, you should say that because, as you know, my specialty is politics. Yes. Ida B. Wells ran for state senator in 1930, just before she died. There were three candidates. She came in third. Her well, street cred did not translate to conventional enclavist politics in the, yeah. on the south side of Chicago. <laughs> well, what's that old saying, Doctor? Uh, Don't send nobody, nobody sent. Exactly. That, and that was the point, that the African-American politics has developed during the Great Migration mimicked traditional Irish politics and ethnic politics in Chicago. What is the definition of the beginning of the Great Migration? I would say that the definition is the Great Migration of African-Americans from the South, something like 1.2 million, to wow. the North, primarily northern cities. That is what significantly drew most people's attention because that was a time when cities really were the center of the public world. They had far more influence than cities have now on the national agenda. You had a lot of factors. Maybe I should preface by saying, I contend that there are six great migrations. I got the idea in part by talking with Jim Grossman. And if you haven't read Jim Grossman's book, and, and I know you have, but for others, it is, to my mind, still the best book on the Great Migration. And Jim contends that there was a mini-migration right after the Civil War of African Americans to Chicago, which I actually had not been familiar with. But I want to emphasize a second migration. And the second migration was in the 1890s, because that brings in the Ida B. Wells and right. the Robert S. Abbotts and right. the Oscar de Priests and the Ed Wrights, and the Jesse Bingas, and the people who actually were the institution builders of the African-American community in Chicago during and after the Great Migration. The Great Migration, of course, provides them with clients, provides them with customers, provides them with readers, provides them with votes. But what Carter G. Woodson called the migration of the talented tent, which I think is a terrible term. That migration in the 1890s sets up the great migration because many of the leaders that we will talk about, many of the people who would help shape the great migration, many of the people who would react 
to the race riot of 1919, did not come during the migration itself. They came in the 1890s. And then, of course, you have then the Great Migration, 1914. Wikipedia says 1914 to 1970, which I think is really weird, and I totally disagree. I think there's a second Great Migration that comes during and in the immediate aftermath of World War II, dating from, I would say, 1939, 1940, certainly before America enters World War II. Then there's another that I think is important around the 1960s. And I think since the 80s or so, you begin to have a trickle, and now I think it's increasingly significant, of a repatriation of African-Americans or migration of African-Americans who grew up in northern cities back to the South. And of course, we know what the significance of the Great Migration was in terms of African-Americans playing a role in the transformation of the Democratic Party because these northern votes were critical for the election of Democrats in the 1940s. Some even would contend, I don't agree, but some would even contend critical to the election of Harry Truman in 1948. We know the importance of the Harlem Renaissance and the Chicago Renaissance that followed. We know the importance in terms of culture generally. We know the importance of this migration in terms of creating an African-American working class, an African-American industrial working class. That's a terribly important factor. And then we know the impact of the African-American migration in terms of the declining importance of African-American voters or the declining importance of the suppression of African-American voters in the South in the aftermath of that migration. But it is one of the most transformative events in American history in the 20th century. Was there a push-pull involved? I mean, there was the lure of jobs, of course, but was there also the factor of Jim Crow? I think you're absolutely correct. I place the pull as more important than the push. I know that a number of scholars will disagree with me, but you've got to look at European, Southern European especially, immigration to the United States. 1914, it's 1.2 million. 1915, it's 75% less. It's hard to travel across the Atlantic when a war has started. You've got a huge industrial plant. It's actually heating up. There's a desperate need for workers. Even the lowest paying job is going to pay you significantly better in Chicago than what you were going to make as a sharecropper or a small farmer in the South. So I think that the economic incentives and opportunity offered by the decline of European migration and by economic opportunities in steel and in hog butchering and in other kinds of industrial work were the most persuasive factor. But yes, You had Jim Crow, but then you've had Jim Crow in the South since uh, the 1880s, 1890s. You had violence. What's the figure? 3,500 African-Americans lynched between 1880 and 1950 or 1960. But then that violence had an ebb and flow to it. So I'm not sure that that many people escaped the South to escape lynching. The general indignity and discrimination that attended Jim Crow is the most important factor in terms of the push. But you needed several other things. You had labor agents going throughout the South, often at the risk of their own lives, to recruit African-Americans to go North and to help supplement the industrial workforce. You had the Chicago Defender, and I think the Chicago Defender does not get enough credit for essentially arguing that the South is hell get out, come to Chicago, 
It's not perfect, but we have opportunities for you. Another factor was that you had people who were basically leaving as a group. You had chain migrations in some instances, although most African-Americans who came to Chicago came as single men or single women rather than as families. That would come later and more significantly during the second migration. So I can't forget the lowly boll weevil, which oh. had devastating impacts on Southern agriculture. Mm -hmm. And so many sharecroppers were losing their jobs because the farms were in disarray because of the boll weevil attacks. So as usual in history, there are half a dozen explanations. And your job is to pick the ones that you find most impactful. And for me, the most impactful one is, again, job opportunities, opportunities for economic advance, and the safety that comes with living in the North. After all, the assumption was that you wouldn't have a group of men coming to your door, taking you out to be lynched. And of course, that was before the race riot of 1919. And then I was also thinking the Pullman Porters, too, are part of that with the Chicago Defender, right? You're absolutely right. But many of the Pullman Porters were taking the Chicago Defender with them and oftentimes surreptitiously providing people with some idea of what was going on in Chicago and in other Northern cities. But to my mind, the Chicago Defender is the first national African-American newspaper and has the greatest impact. We recently did a podcast on the Pullman strike of 1894. And so we were reading up on the whole history of the Pullman Palace Car Company and whatnot. And I discovered that apparently all Pullman porters were named, quote, George. If you rode the train and you wanted the attention of the attendant, you would say, hey, George, if I was some businessman. And of course, they would come over and shine your shoes and whatnot and smile and be very friendly because they lived on tips. But I thought, what an indignity that here's these grown men who are called George because that was George Pullman's name, the founder of the company. Right. And it, it kind of reminds me of the story of Frank Sinatra, who would call everybody Clyde because he didn't remember their names. <laughs> everybody thought that was so cool. He'd call you, hey, Clyde. But uh, you're absolutely right. The idea that everybody would be named George is a very, I think, important piece of the history of the invisibility of African-Americans. Going back to my favorite novel, uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. You all look alike, you all, you know, you all occupy the same status, which of course is both beneath me and to serve me. And right. yes, uh, yeah, I'll call you George. On the other hand, and there's always gonna be another hand. On the other hand, I had a friend whose father was a Pullman Porter and one could live a decent, if cost conscious middle-class life with a parent as a Pullman Porter. There were even African-American doctors who'd gone through medical school, who left the practice to become Pullman porters because in the black community, it paid better. And wow. so that's one thing. Another thing is Pullman porters were often looked up to because they traveled. Uh, many African-Americans lived a quite insular life. In fact, I think this is one of the, the truisms of the ghetto experience. And it's changing in good ways and bad ways very recently. But one could find teenagers in Chicago from the African-American community who've never been out of the African-American community. And the only white people they've ever met were either police officers or maybe a few school teachers. They'd never been downtown. Wow. So the fact that Pullman Porter seemed worldly because they traveled gave them status. I have a picture in one of my slideshows 
of Pullman Porter organizations. The Southside Community Arts Center was housed in a Pullman Porter building. So that was an important thing. Pullman Porter salaries allowed them to save some money so that their children, that is my age, in the 1960s would be the first generation of African-Americans to go to college. I imagine, though, being a, a writer and an author and now a podcaster, it's all about storytelling. And if you're a Pullman Porter, you have this insight through travel and with your customers. Imagine the stories they could tell that would make them a very attractive person to hang out with and learn more about the world just hearing a few of their stories from work. Yes. And of course, they met celebrities because Pullman Porters often dealt with the elite who even that time, but no, especially at that time, how are you going to travel across the country? You're going to travel by train. They'd also be the best tippers. And so you'd have great gossip to tell people about important white people that they had met and that they had serviced. Another thing that's, I think, very useful to know about the Pullman Porters is sometimes they had second families. Oh, <laughs> mm, right. Well, it's also because they were often, especially those senior Pullman Porters, often assigned cities over and over again. And when they were in another city, they had disposable income. And so they would be attractive to small town girls. They were celebrities in their own communities. Good catches. Yes. And because they were also organized, they could contribute to social organizations and charitable organizations as a group, which most other African-Americans did not. I mean, just remember, you had a significant portion who thought that, especially when World War I began to heat up and Woodrow Wilson basically took over the economy. Many in organized labor thought this was a golden opportunity for them to get their foot in the door. And that organizing African-Americans was a great idea because obviously there's power in numbers. And let's say the meatpacking plants. All of the meatpacking plants offered employment to African-Americans. It might have been at the lowest wages. I remember hearing stories about going to meatpacking plants as school trips. Take the students out. They would take them to the meatpacking plants. And when they would do that, when a school was scheduled, all of the black women working in the meatpacking plants would be replaced by white women. So you wouldn't see black women actually handling food during wow. these school trips. Now, the importance of this is that there was another segment that simply did not want African-Americans involved in it and were hiring. And certainly the employers, the big five, didn't want African-Americans to join unions. So one of the things you see in Chicago is that the Chicago Police Department often at the behest of Chicago politicians, would prevent African-American workers from marching with white workers during parades or, or during strikes. They would literally intervene to keep the color line. Some workers thought it was great because they didn't want to be brought down to the level of the black worker, but certainly plant managers and the owners thought this was useful to destroy any hope of solidarity between black and white workers. Wow. Divide and conquer like they've always been doing. You've got three things. One, of course, is that you began to have in the late 1960s and 70s more of an attempt to recruit African-Americans as consumers because every dollar counts, whereas their isolation might mean that they shopped at the corner store. The largest African-American store that opened during the golden period of the Great Migration was run by the Jones boys, who were policy kings. 
and it opened up on 47th Street and it was big and it offered all the amenities, but it's not going to compete with a downtown store. And then, of course, you have the status of going downtown or the status of being waited on by a white employee. And so in the 1960s and 70s, that also changed. I remember that there was a time when African-Americans couldn't go to Woolworths, sit down at a counter and eat a sandwich. This was true in Chicago. And that changed. Some party had changed because of protests like CORE, but partly it also changed because I think I am told that the Palmer House had its first African-American rental room in the 1960s by mistake. Remember, this is the 1960s. And when the person arrived, they just decided, okay, we'll rent them a room. It was as simple and, and as insignificant as that. Nobody had signed an agreement with a civil rights organization. It was just, well, okay, he's here and he's obviously in a suit, so we'll let him and his wife stay. There was no National Guard at the front door to make sure it all went okay or any of that. Exactly, exactly. But you're right. These institutions could never have been as capitalized as businesses downtown. They simply could not compete. There were a few organizations that were able to maintain some success. I'm thinking especially of Johnson's publications and Johnson's products because they would survive very well. But in many instances, they're not going to be able to keep control of their customer base in the Black community where when Black African-Americans now feel that not only will their dollar count, but that they'll be treated decently and have the status of going downtown or have the status of buying nationally recognized products. Michelle Duster, in her essay on the Red Summer, she talks about some of the Black-owned businesses, Soft Sheen, the Parker House Sausage, Army and Lou's Soul Food Restaurant, Seaway Bank. These were great institutions. My first bank account was with Seaway Bank. Went to Army and Lou's. It had some of the best coffee, best black coffee I've ever tasted. But Army and Lou's is now closed. Parker House Sausage is no more. Again, getting back to the Great Migration, Chicago had very active entrepreneurs. Jesse Binga had the first nationally recognized African-American bank. Robert S. Abbott had the Chicago Defender, which was so big and powerful that if you look at the FBI files, this is before the FBI was formed, but if you look at the reports from a major loving to John Edgar Hoover in the period of the First World War, they recognized the importance of African-American institutions and the threat that that might pose. And they were not going to shut down the Chicago Defender. They shut down every African-American leftist magazine and newspaper in the country, but they did not touched the Chicago Defender, even though the Chicago Defender was critical of the war effort because of African-American mistreatment in a way that W.E.B. Du Bois was not speaking for the NAACP. So they were important. You got the Chicago Broadax, you got Chicago Courier, you got African-American businessmen in so many areas that in 1928, the Spingarn Medal, which is the most prestigious award from the NAACP, goes to an African-American entrepreneur. I wish I could remember his name right now. It'll come to me. But it should have gone to Jesse Binger. It didn't go to Jesse Binger, I'm told, because nobody liked him. (laughs) (laughs) But it was in recognition of Chicago as not only the Black political capital of America, but the Black business capital of America. And this was the reputation that Chicago held even into the 1960s, was if you go to Chicago, it's 
rough and tough and violent and you'll be segregated. But Chicago is a place, and I remember hearing this as a young person, where Black people can make money. And this was a mythology that had its origins in the Great Migration, in the 200,000 African-Americans who came to Chicago and who not only created a consumer base, but built a wide range of businesses, developed politics in such a way that the first three African-American congressmen from the North all came from Chicago. Chicago elected William Dawson, its third African-American congressman, before Harlem elected Adam Clayton Powell. So. Wow. Uh, Chicago had a reputation as where if you were willing to work hard enough and had the energy, you could succeed. You have a unique position on this because although you grew up in the North, you moved to Memphis. I lived in Memphis for 10 years, between 8 and 18. So my formative years were all in the South. never heard of Ida B. Wells when I was living in Memphis. And although I went to a segregated public high school and had a Black history teacher, He never mentioned any African-Americans except for one, Booker T. Washington. Now, in the North, obviously, there was unwritten segregation laws. But being in Memphis, it was not subtle, correct? No, no, no. I remember going to clothing stores with my mother. I was the only boy, so I would be the one who'd hold the door. And then my mother would come back five or ten minutes later to find me. I'm still holding the door for people (laughs) to walk in. Yeah, there were stores where you could buy clothes, but you couldn't try them on. The Malco Theater downtown. African-Americans could not sit with whites. We had to go to a side entrance, up some stairs, and then you knew that you were in the seating area for African-Americans, not because it said colored, but because there was a picture of Booker T. Washington. And yes, there were white and black drinking fountains. I used to pass Elvis Presley's school, Hume's High School, on my way to Manassas High School. Well, we were so segregated, we never ran into white people unless they came to speak at our high school. Actually, I don't think I ever spoke to a white person until the summer after I'd graduated from high school, when I was invited to a book club by a liberal in Memphis who wanted to have blacks and whites socialize. I don't think I ever spoke to any of the white students there, and I don't think I ever opened my mouth during the, the book club. Even though I read the book, that's how segregated life was like in Memphis. And I'm sure that there were cities and small towns where it was even worse. I remember going to Mississippi one time to visit some relatives from Memphis. It was a short drive, but it was like a world away. We were down in an area which was ostensibly there downtown. And there were two level tracks where whites would walk and where blacks would walk. And the black area tracks on the stairs were actually lower. I couldn't believe it. That was one of the elements I wanted to discuss a little deeper was the cultural differences between the South and the North. And in the North, we tend to pride ourselves that we're more equal opportunity. But yet, I can only imagine from reading more about the time and the surroundings of the race riots and forced housing, you're not allowed to go outside these areas for a better home, even though you can afford many times better. And these seemingly benign Northerners, but then all of a sudden they'll turn on you for no clear reason, whereas in the South, at least, maybe it was well-defined. Can you kind of speak to that? Well, actually, I should do what I always do, which is give you three points. (laughs) That's that's the way I emphasized it with my kids for 50 years of teaching. Let's begin with the fact that the old settlers, uh, including the Chicago Defender, were very much aware of exactly what you're talking about. And I spent a year just reading the Chicago Defender. I was teaching at University of Illinois, took a year out, 
and did nothing but go to the George Cleveland Hall branch of the Chicago Public Library and just sit down and read the Chicago Defender during the Great Migration Era. And so you get to learn a lot of context. And so one of the things is, you're absolutely right. And it was a cause of concern among many of the leaders of the Black community, many of the older settlers uh, who blamed the Great Migration for deteriorating racial relations. And so you see people like Robert S. Abbott, who was a man of the people. Robert S. Abbott was not somebody who ever put on airs. Robert S. Abbott was rich, but he could sit down on a curb with a Black working man or with a Black unemployed guy and talk with him because he himself had faced discrimination within the Black community. Robert S. Abbott was a Geechee. He was from the South Sea Islands off the coast of Georgia and South Carolina. He had a bit of an accent. He also was very dark-skinned at a time when many in the Black community and some of the elite churches were very color-conscious. So Robert S. Abbott felt for average people and spoke their language. And that's one of the reasons Chicago Defender was so successful. But he himself was writing editorials or others were writing editorials in Chicago Defender saying, don't hang your laundry out of the window. Don't wear plastic caps on your head when you're outdoors or don't come outdoors in your robe or watch how you speak with people when you're riding the bus. You're bringing us down. You're undermining race relations with your crudeness, with your keeping chickens in the backyard, with your sleeping in coal bins and the poor hygiene. And so what you're talking about is something of a cultural shock. On the other hand, there was not a fear that you were going to be arbitrarily menaced by a mob. There were opportunities for education that would have been unimagined by most Africans. Remember, this is not just simply a migration to Chicago and, and major cities. This is a demographic shift for African-Americans. The most rural people, the most rural people in America in 1900, were now going to become, within 60 years, the most urban people in America. And that's going to be a dramatic cultural shift in terms of everything from eating in public and how loud you talk to how you settle personal beefs. That's a dramatic shock. About 20% of African-Americans in 1900 lived in the cities and about 80% of African-Americans in the 1970s lived in cities. So we're talking about a dramatic change. Now, another factor that seems to me kind of important in terms of how you see things is that you have this leadership class in place that not only is going to offer you services, but that's going to attempt to organize you. And as I told you before, Chicago is the Black business and Black political capitals of America. And not only does this mean that African-Americans are going to create their own enclaves, but that it's going to offer opportunities for ambitious African-Americans that are not available in any other place. You can be the best African-American lawyer in the world. There's no white law firm downtown that's going to hire you. If you want to be behind the counter of, of a large store downtown, good luck. If you want to be a telephone operator, good luck. There are a wide range of employment opportunities from which African-Americans are just going to be excluded. It's not just simply something that was true of 1914, but that would end in 1920. It would go on basically through the 1960s. And so this would mean that smart, hardworking, ambitious, especially men, would have to compete with each other 
in a very limited number of arenas. And so politics is highly contested within the African-American community. And because it's contested, they are able to mobilize more powerfully. And therefore, the leadership of the political parties, Republican and Democratic Party, are either going to seek to marginalize them, which is what happened to Ed Wright in the 1920s. He simply became too powerful, which is what happened to William Dawson in the 1960s. But by that time, there were so many Black people, you can't marginalize him. You simply try to create, and especially within Catholic African-Americans, try to create an alternative group more loyal to Mayor Daley and more loyal to the machine and give Dawson less and less clout within city politics. So their success did not come without tremendous cost, without sacrifice, but also their success on occasion was seen as a threat to white institutions in Chicago. And they found ways generally historically of either destroying you or marginalizing you. Well, and that's the problem that a lot of whites have is we've been in the majority or held the power and anybody that's holding power doesn't like to relinquish it or accommodate others too, right? Politics is a business. And so like any good business, you want a larger share of the market. And so if being able to bring up somebody who's going to be loyal and not threaten you, and certainly not threaten your business relations or threaten your relationships with the police or threaten your relationships with other powerful institutions who provide you with money, yeah, you're going to do that. And it's also going to mean that this politics is going to be insulated, marginalized, or medically sealed from other African-American institutions. You don't have the NAACP in Chicago, whose first, I think, six or seven presidents were all white. You don't have the NAACP in Chicago having much influence in African-American politics. You don't see the Urban League having much influence. You don't see the emerging civil rights or anti-discrimination organizations post-World War II having much influence. When Martin Luther King came to Chicago to battle for open housing, you had African-American preachers holding meetings at the exact same time Martin Luther King was holding meetings because basically Mayor Daley told them to do that. They wanted to keep more African-Americans from supporting Dr. King. Tell us about the stroll. Oh, the stroll. 26 to 34th Street on State Street. Actually, I don't view the stroll as that unique because that's also what was going on in Harlem. I don't know if it was going on in other cities, but I would be very surprised if there wasn't a similar stroll in St. Louis. And the the reality is you have an area which combines three things that are always very important. One is it combines culture. There were all kinds of night spots throughout the stroll. In fact, the streetlights never went off. They were on day and night through this area. So it kind of gave it kind of an allure of being a place where nobody ever sleeps and where you can hear good music. Remember, the African-American community has been a hub for, not as important as Broadway, but an important hub for African-American performers. I'd say going all the way back to 1906 and the Pekin Theater with Robert T. Mutz. He was a gambler, so he had money. And he built the Pekin Theater, burned down. He builds it even bigger. And artists from all over the country, because, I mean, artists are still hand to mouth in terms of trying to find an audience and in terms of being able to have the luxury of to create. 
artists from all over the country would come to the Pekin Theater to perform. Everybody who worked there, I think mostly everybody who worked there were African-Americans. The, the stage directors and, and certainly the artistic talent was African-American. And so the Pekin Theater is, I think, the run-up to the stroll in that it starts to decline when Mott's dies in 1911. But the African-American population is really not going to get huge until the Great Migration. Now you have a large group of people who have money in their pockets and who want to be entertained and who want to have a good time. And also, you have a group of young people, single people. Where are you going to meet women? Or if you're a woman, where are you going to meet men? So the stroll, like Harlem, has this other feature. And that is the stroll is where you dress up. The stroll is where you are cock of the walk for uh, a few hours, where you get to meet your buddies and tell lies, <laughs> where you get to meet women, where you get to dance with women, which is generally the only way you can put your arm around a woman and not get slapped. That's all I know. That's all I know. When it comes starting, it always lasts. When I get started, I work fast. Let's so wildo. Let's so wildo. We'll go strolling far away and find some place where we can play and have our fun and let it lay. Let's so wildo. It is opportunity for the African-American community to not only imbibe culture, but also it becomes a social necessity. And like virtually everything else in the African-American community, it's going to decline as the center of the African-American population moves south. And so when you get 47th Street jumping, the stroll will begin to decline. Also, let's face it, who moves south? Who has the luxury and the money to move south? The burgeoning African-American middle class. Now, they're not rich, but they have some disposable income. And that's how communities are built. The Black community in Chicago will have these main thoroughfares. The stroll was the main thoroughfare for a period of time, but eventually the Black community is going to move south. 47th Street is going to be the main thoroughfare. Then 63rd Street is going to be the main thoroughfare. 75th never established itself as a main thoroughfare because of timing. By the time African-Americans have moved further south into what was then predominantly white area in the 60s and 70s, you have the civil rights movement, you have racial integration, you have some African-Americans beginning to move into other areas, especially areas like Kenwood and Hyde Park for the very, very rich. And so the idea of an established anchor for a community declines. And that, of course, is a major problem in terms of the development of the African-American community because you don't have a location where prominent lawyers, barbers, electricians, or whatever are going to be found. And so they, in turn, don't have a captive audience of consumers who can allow them to help sustain their business or grow their business. You mentioned music. You have the Sunset Cafe. You had Louis Armstrong playing every night. He comes north following King Oliver. King Oliver, right. You've got the closing story, though. 
I don't know if Louis Armstrong would have stayed in Storyville had the houses of ill repute and the gin joints been shut down by the army. But there was opportunity in Chicago, and then there was greater opportunity in New York. So while I'd love to claim Louis Armstrong as a Chicagoan, Louis Armstrong is regarded by many as one of the few authentic geniuses of the 20th century. Much of his best work was done in New York, but his earliest work was in Chicago. And then Cab Calloway played a lot at the Sunset Cafe as well. the nickels and dimes. She sat around and counted them all a million times. Well, remember, a lot of people would play in Chicago because it was halfway between the East and West Coasts. Right. Chicago was a place where you had an awful lot of people coming to visit. That's another built-in audience. People would tell me stories about Gene Autry and John Barrymore. And I don't know if they were slumming or if they just simply preferred to come down to the Black community and listen to their music. I had this hard time imagining Gene Autry. With the cowboy hat. In a blues joint or in, in a jazz <laughs> joint. But... Yes, celebrities would come into Chicago and they would go down to the South Side and they'd listen to music. I remember running into Alex Trebek at, at the Cotton Club. I remember running into Bonnie Raitt at wow. Teresa's. My grandfather came to Chicago from Southern Texas, the Brownsville area, in the 1890s. And so oh. I have a picture of my grandmother in the Olivet Baptist Church Choir in 1911. My grandmother came from Texas as well. These were people who were part of a community that was so small that pretty much everybody knew everybody else, even if they didn't like them. <laughs> and the people that they didn't interact very much with were the old settlers. And part of this was that many of the old settlers thought that they were rustic and rural and uncouth and that they were bringing the community down. And also part of it is that some of the old settlers lived very integrated lives. Many of them worked in the service industries as waiters and butlers. I remember Edith Kemp. Edith Kemp, you've never heard of. She worked for Evelyn Keyes, Ann Southern, and Betty Davis. Her husband worked for Clark Gable. A lovely woman, but she once said something that made the hairs on the back of my neck come up, but that I'm sure was something that you would have probably heard from the old settlers. And that is that these young black people don't know anything because they never work for white people. They never work for rich white people. As if the culture of rich white people gave them an endowed status in the same way that probably some house slaves thought that they were better than field hands because right. of their propiquity to wealth and culture. So Patrick... It has been a tradition of this podcast that we ask our guests what we call the time machine question. Yes, that's your classic question that I enjoy hearing what they're going to answer each of our guests and how they're going to answer it. When we asked Dr. Branham this time machine question, we got a pretty amazing answer. I was blown away by his answer because it was very thoughtful and provocative and yet 
so honest. So let's hear what Dr. Branham said in response to that question. We ask the people we interview this question, and that is, if you could go back in time in a time machine in Chicago, where would you go and what year? Oh, boy, that is actually an excellent question. Chicago is better now. The quip, the foolish answer would be, I wouldn't go back because I know enough about Chicago history to know how unpleasant being Black in Chicago, how dangerous being Black in Chicago. I was a graduate student at a policeman pull a gun to my head and tell me he was going to kill me and also explain to me how he's going to get away with it. Oh, my God. So, I mean, he was out of uniform. And I guess he thought his girlfriend broke up with him because of me. And so he waylays me, puts a gun to my head, holds me hostage for, I guess, 20, 30 minutes, telling me he's going to kill me. I would not necessarily have wanted to be in the Chicago, even the Chicago of Two-Gun Kelly in the 1940s, <laughs> because Chicago has always, has always been a city with violence and danger, racial conflict, racial exclusion. Anyway, if I had to pick a time, I would say probably 1915 or 1916. The community's swelling. People have jobs and some money because of the war effort. You have elected the first black alderman. There's a sense of pride and accomplishment in that. You got the Chicago Defender coming out every day. And you got music, really good music. You got the struggle. So 1915, 1916 might be a good time. There's a mini depression that hits Black Chicago particularly hard in the early 1920s in the aftermath of the end of World War One. So I'm not sure I want that. If you're in Chicago in the beginnings of the 1939-1940, it's a terrible time. Black men are sleeping in the park. I remember talking to one guy who talked about how he learned to tap his toes because there were some hotels and public places where the guys who were basically in charge of security, kind of understood what was going on. So they would let you in. And if you could sit down and keep your toes tapping, they'd let you sleep. I remember one guy said, the depression was as hard as Japanese arithmetic. And I didn't understand the significance of that. But if you're a semi-literate working guy of a certain age who had ridden the rails as he had in the 1930s, Nothing was harder than arithmetic, and nothing was harder than arithmetic in another language. So I wouldn't have wanted to be there during the Great Depression. I might have enjoyed Chicago in the post-World War II period. Again, jobs, growing middle class, but I'm going to stick with 1915-1916 as a time when there are new places popping up. You've got the stroll. You've got new opportunities for employment. I certainly don't want to live in the 1970s. And I lived in Chicago in the 1970s as the <laughs> is taking place and people are losing their job all right and left because I actually witnessed that. I knew people who'd worked in the steel mills. I knew people who worked in rubber plants and rubber factories and others. I remember the difficulties some of the older people had readjusting, coming up with a new job or coming up with a job that paid less. So yeah, I'm going to stick with 1950, 1960. I think that's an excellent answer, and I love your reasoning because, as a historian, you just laid it out. Oh, so the fashions were great. <laughs> Have you seen the drawings in the Chicago Defender? Have you seen how men dressed? Everybody wore a tie and everybody wore a hat. 
My grandfather used to wear a fedora, and boy, did he look great. Well, yeah, and I kind of wish we'd bring that back. I can't pull it off. I'll dust up some old suits and lots of ties, some of which are actually presentable. Let's get out on the streets. The more of us on the streets, the safer we are. And let's recreate that sense of dressing to the nice. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick, I want to do the stroll with Dr. Branham. I want to put on the suits. I want to stroll down the avenue. I want to look cool. <laughs> so we got to do that sometime. It would be amazing. By the way, for the listeners who have enjoyed this podcast, we are planning a program on the 1919 race riots. And as part of that discussion, we again talk with Dr. Branham. And he had some great insights into that as well. And that's another great interview with him. He's very engaging and amazing man to listen to because his talks have so much richness and depth given his experience and knowledge. So to wrap things up, I thought a good way to end the podcast would be with a funny story that Dr. Branham told us about how parishioners on Sunday at church were not always as pious as they let on. Thank you for listening. I grew up in the AME church. And I know from firsthand knowledge that much of the conversation after church was not about the Bible. It wasn't even about the preacher. It's about what people wore. Did you see what she wore? You know, that hat was matching those gloves that was matching that purse. Yeah, it was all dialed up. Or did you see how tacky that dress was? <laughs> Human beings in all of our fallibility. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.